episode 15 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to have a panel of three guests share their experiences with per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, better known as PFAS. We'll discuss what it is or what they are and why should you care about it. Our first guest we have is Kathy Swanson. Kathy is a groundwater remediation specialist globally for Purolite Corporation. She has worked on water treatment for perchlorate, nitrate, uranium, TOC, VOC, and now PFAS for over 14 years. She has worked on treatment technologies ranging from GAC or GAC to biological to reverse osmosis, and now focuses on ion exchange resins. Her project portfolio includes both remediation and drinking water sites. Welcome, Kathy. Hello, how are you? Great, glad you're with us. Our next guest is Marcy Payne from Legend Laboratories. Her first job in Arizona was at a laboratory testing blood for five years, and they realized she was a people person. You can't chat it up in the lab with your lab samples, is what she commented on. So she transitioned into real estate and did very well as a new home sales agent and working independently for several years. And then circled back to the laboratory industry in 2017 by joining Legend Technical Services as the sales and marketing manager and couldn't be happier. And she truly enjoys the water industry. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you for the introduction, Heather. Glad you're with us. And last but not least, we have Dr. Rosa Gwynn. She leads ACOM's global PFAS technical practice, focusing on measuring and mitigating PFAS. She has provided technical and project management expertise to private and government clients for 30 years. Her primary focus has been on the characterization and remediation of emerging environmental contaminants, including PFAS, fluorinated solvents, explosives, and metals. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I am so excited to have you ladies with us. Um, This is a really technical topic and we're not going to get too nerdy, although I know you women absolutely can. But these PFAS substances have been around since World War II in the 1940s. And now we interact with them daily from food packaging to Teflon coatings and tapes, water and stain proof materials, firefighting foam. In your opinion, ladies, why is it only now really come up on the water industry radar? I can dive in there. This is Rosa. I don't know that it's only just hit the water industry, but it is arising in people's consciousness on the heels of a publication and sharing uh, uh, several years ago of what was called the Unregulated Contaminant Monitoring Rule 3, or UCMR3, results. That was a sampling program undertaken by the U.S. EPA, as it's required to do every five years, looking for things we aren't normally looking for in our drinking water. And they looked for six PFAS compounds, and son of a gun, if they didn't find them in just a whole bunch of water supplies. And the reason you're hearing about it now is because the information that we received, you know, four years ago on that is gelling in how uh, government and state and federal entities are Mm -hmm. focusing on managing these PFAS in drinking water and other parts of our environment. And I think that's why that's bubbled up. And uh, it certainly has gotten a lot of attention since in February 2019, the U.S. EPA released its so-called PFAS Action Plan, which sounds very exciting. <laughs> and, um, and you know, so if somebody promises to take action, people are going to start holding uh, you accountable for it. And I think that's really what we're seeing, Heather, is a lot of communication around uh, communities hoping that they can respond 
uh, especially if they have PFAS uh, in drinking water supplies or in wastewater systems that they need to focus on. So that's that, you know, there's some people who've been worried about this for decades, and then there's kind of the rest of us who are, are just getting our arms around the problem and, and figuring out what we need to do. And Heather, if I, I could jump in, this yeah. is Kathy here. Rosa, completely agree with you. I think a lot of what the UCMR data has, has done is really highlighted these compounds for us. But I think even before that, a lot of the attention came because of really the work of one man, Rob Balot. Rob is a lawyer. And if you watch the movie Dark Waters, it kind of tells about the story of how he discovered PFAS in the water in, in a region of West Virginia and uh, discovered that that was the cause of health effects of both animals and people in that region. And I think it was a lot of his work and a lot of his putting things into the public domain that actually forced the EPA to take a look at this and, and reconcile this chemical in our environment. I agree. Marcy, did you want to add anything as well? Completely agree with both Rosa and Kathy. I do a lot of outreach with operators, drinking water, wastewater here in the Southwest, actually specifically the state of Arizona. And two years ago, back before COVID, when I was attending Arizona Water Association conferences, the movie had just come out that Kathy was just talking about. And that was really a great time to be able to give this information for the operators that are out there working. And they all watched the movie, would come back the next day and say, oh my gosh, I threw out my Teflon pots and pans and mm -hmm. think that getting the word out for everyone in this industry, whether it be the managers, the operators, the engineers, Really, the television aspect has really helped open everyone's eyes to it, too. Us in the laboratory, at the same time, we were purchasing instrumentation, which is quite expensive. Getting that set up, it took almost a year to get the instrumentation completely set up and ready to analyze results. Everything has to be ran and passed proficiency testing mm -hmm. in order to have the certification for those EPA method 537.1 testing. So I do agree with Kathy, with Rosa, and all this information is, it's on the news now. Here in Arizona, right around the military bases, uh, you do see a lot of information <laughs> being on, on the news at night. See, I don't know if you guys have bought a Teflon pan lately or looked at them, but they're starting to put now PFOS free or PFOA free or, or those kind of things. And Wendy's just recently announced that they're going to get rid of all PFAS for their food packaging by a certain date. So, I mean, it is starting, you know, one person snowballing it and it's starting to become more and more in the culture. We're going to see it a lot more. So let me ask you ladies, what are PFAS? What, what are these chemicals that we're talking about? I tell people they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And everything that we have on us, personal care products from lotion, makeup. Yeah. Yeah. Well, PFAS are, it's a, it's actually a class of compounds uh, that has a shared chemical characteristic um, and that characteristic. And, you know, let's all go back to a little high school chemistry for just a hot minute. A lot of organic compounds are chains of carbons and in many natural compounds, those carbons are connected to one another and to hydrogen atoms. And in, in PFAS, the, that one 
at least one carbon has had those hydrogens knocked off and, and has been synthesized to have two fluorines in their place. So what, right? So there's this carbon-fluorine bond. That's the essential defining characteristic of a PFAS compound. So those are all man-made and, they, uh, and people found that they were, uh, had these unique characteristics because that carbon-fluorine bond is extremely strong and it's very stable. And so the part of the compound that has the fluorine carbon bond in it doesn't react with other things. It doesn't convert, you know, from a sugar into whatever, like other compounds, it, it, it stays very stable. And that's why if you connect that to a part of the molecule that does interact with other things, you get this magical characteristic of uh, being able to keep a surface from not being sticky. One end sticks to the carpet or the Teflon pan or your jacket or your shoes. And the other end of the molecule is these tails of carbon fluorine bonds and they're waving in the air and nothing sticks to them. So you get water repellency, you get oil resistance, you get grease resistance. You can get things to be slippery. Teflon is a PFAS related compound. Yeah, and so you get these surfactants and they've been extremely helpful to us in society. We we all enjoy walking in the rain and not getting wet because we're wearing our jackets that are coated with some form of a PFAS and it all seems pretty great until you throw your jacket in the landfill or your carpeting or your Teflon pan or whatever, food packaging waste, pizza box. And then these, and even during manufacturing, these compounds have a capability of entering into the environment. And then all of a sudden you have something that we don't want and we don't want it for PFAS and we don't want it for lots of other things like fuels and chlorinated solvents. And yet, you know, here we are facing these fairly common compounds, now common compounds, and they're in a lot of spots. They're in a lot of spots they shouldn't be. My chemistry teacher always called fluorine the bully. Fluorine is a bully. (laughs) I I, I like to think of it, Heather, as kind of like shields up, just like Star Trek, right? That fluorine provides just like this force field around that plastic that that gives it all these magical characteristics. The problem is because it's so resistant to the environment, that's why it's accumulated and been found everywhere from the blood of polar bears to the whales, uh, livers in, in whales, and virtually 100% of the people I've seen the data in Los Angeles, where I live, all have PFAS in their blood. 95% of humans have some level of PFAS in their blood. Uh, so like Rosa said, it's, it, it's where we don't want it now. I have to say, as a mom, that ticked me off when I started <laughs> investigating it. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. And, and finding out, you know, my my toddler, my kids already have this in them. And here I've done all these things to keep them healthy and stuff. It's a, it's a little defeating. But well, I, I think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, Heather, I just had to dive in. You know, you said your children were toddler age. And I, I think there's something that you can embrace here. So you don't put yourself through the mother torture machine. And that is several PFAS for which we actually have toxicological information. And we really only have tox data on, reliable tox data on a handful. 
even though there's thousands of these. A couple of them stopped manufacturing in the U.S. in the 2000s and in 2010s and wouldn't be on your carpeting and wouldn't be around your child. You know, I don't know about your personal situation, but you, you could have exposed your child to drinking water but probably less from just sort of the general environment. And the reason I'm mentioning this is, indeed, you can look this up. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has been testing PFAS in in the blood serum of Americans since, I don't know, over 20 years. And uh, it's going down over time. And the reason that this is PFAS and PFOA concentrations are going down over time, and part of that is because there are less and less of these around us, right? They, there are replacement PFAS, but these particular ones, less so. And also the population is younger. So, I mean, just speaking for myself, I've been around for you know, half a century and I was exposed to PFAS before there were any, even any environmental regulations. But your children have grown up in an environment where there are environmental regulations. And because of this PFAS stewardship program, probably have been exposed to a much lower level. And if you look at the data from CDC, the concentrations have really gone down over time. So it matters. You intersect this exposure pathway, you stop production, you reduce the source term, and uh, you can already see that there are improvements, in at least in human beings. It doesn't mean that they don't bioaccumulate or have the potential to enter the ecosystem. I'm not dismissing it. I just wanted to give you a slight bit of good news. Your kids Thank are all you. right. Your kids are all right is the who used to say. So, yeah, I'm like, is it you or is it the, you know, your chemicals talking? But uh, mm-hmm. no, I, I appreciate that because, you know, I'm thinking this is going to be around for a couple of generations. This isn't going to go away, uh, but it can uh, be reduced. And we can, you know, I've already switched over myself from Teflon pans to stoneware things. What are the two that we really know of? You know, there's standards within the federal government for what they consider to be acceptable toxicological studies, right? Everybody, mm-hmm. everybody might do some research, but if you have to meet a certain bar for reproducibility and what have you. And so there really are three PFAS specifically that have published toxicology data that are accepted, so to speak, into some of these EPA standards uh, for uh, tox data requirements. And those are PFOS, PFOA, and PFBS. And I know that sounds like an alphabet soup, but PFAS, perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, is an eight-carbon chain. And its friend PFOA is the same chain, but without a sulfonic group on the end. And then PFBS, perfluoral butanoic butane sulfonic acid is a four carbon chain. It's a little short one, but PFAS can have 12 carbons and they can have one carbon can have trifluoroacetic acid. So yeah, those three are the three sort of known entities. And there's a handful more in the wings. If you go to Australia, they feel pretty good about the six carbon chain for fluorohex hexanes. I should stop trying to pronounce chemical compounds. There's only a handful that we know when we don't understand quite the mechanisms. And actually, you know, toxicology is complicated, right? Because not everything gives you cancer. People are always worried about cancer, cancer, cancer. But, you know, they can also do other things. And so there is a sense that these compounds have a tendency to accumulate in kidney, in the kidneys or liver of human beings. 
and, and do indeed have an association with some human cancers. So those are the three actors that we know what they're doing. And then there's a bunch more that we don't know what they're doing. And then the other thing that I want everybody to keep in mind is not all of them were produced to the same degree. You know, some are highly abundant, might be worse for you, but these were the among the three most abundant produced that are around. And so we have the data for those. And that's kind of a consolation. The bad part, want to hear some bad news? They're not very good for you at extremely low concentrations. So that that leads to you know, a tremendous amount of frustration and actually is probably more why we're here because if you've got to get something out of water and you got to get it out at a super low concentration limit, it challenges technology. Marcy, what are you guys typically testing for when when you're accepting a sample? We do, we provide the EPA 537.1 method. The 537.1 method for PFAS includes we have a couple different packages, basically. You can do the 12 compound, the 14 compound, or the 18 compound set of analysis. Obviously, there's right now nothing is, it's not for compliance per ADQ, per EPA. So right now, it's more or less a lot of systems are testing to see if they have it. I know that some of the state regulatory authorities have been also afforded some of the smaller systems. They are doing the testing for the smaller systems to get a baseline to see some of these small systems out in the rural areas. Are they getting any any detections? Some of the bigger systems. Obviously, some of the large private or municipal utilities are have already been proactive and have already tested for PFAS years ago. And they're keeping an eye on it because things are just kind of moving down the pipeline now into the whole treatment. And that's more your end of it. But we've mm-hmm. seen testing being happening for a couple of years now. Um, obviously, from the UCMR3, they're going to add some more compounds, I heard, as well for UCMR5. I don't know for sure. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> we'll hold you to it. <laughs> but as we discussed, the PFAS compounds are everywhere. So really what I specialize in is informing operators, managers, engineers, whoever is going to collect the sample to be aware because we don't want to contaminate our sample. So that's really specifically what I deal with almost on a daily basis is to say, hey, you know, these compounds are everywhere. They're on our skin from our lotion. They're on our clothing, on our work boots. Uh, When you go out in the field, you have to be aware that, hey, these things are everywhere. We don't want to contaminate our sample. That's why for those of you who go out and collect a sample, you receive a fill blank. And that sample, when you are at that location to collect the sample, that field blank needs to be transferred into the empty bottle. And what will happen is once after you collect your sample, the samples go to the laboratory. They're analyzed. When I say analyzed, there's a lot more that goes on when for the analysis. There's an ex- extraction process that's involved, uh, setting up the sample. When the instrument is prepared, there's a lot of different aspects that go into the whole analysis. So if we, if the laboratory, if we get a detection in the sample, that's what a field blank is for. We need to analyze then the field blank to ensure that it didn't actually come from the environment. And we need to rule that out. 
so that the reporting is going to be accurate, that you're going to know that, okay, if I had a detection of my field blank for that same compound in my sample, you're going to have to resample um, because you definitely don't want to report that, oh, I have this particular compound when it actually came from the environment, if that makes sense. That's important to know because sampling is going to be new for a lot of people. And I remember you said you, you look rather homeless when you go out. <laughs> Just trying to eliminate all that that interference. Right. There, there is a lot to it. Um, and, and that's kind of what I joke around with with operators when I explain to them, you know, this is kind of a good guideline of what you want to do. And I always kind of say I would look nothing like what I do now. Um, no makeup, no hairspray, <laughs> no fabric softener on your clothing. Um, so I can give you a list of what to do and what not to do. Oh, yeah, that'd be we'll throw that in the show notes. That'd be lovely. OK, so for contamination prevention, when collecting for PFAS samples, it is recommended that no clothing or boots contain Gore-Tex or Tyvex, no fabric softener, no cosmetics, moisturizers, hand cream or related, only approved sunscreen and insect repellent. You can use any of the store-bought products that say free or natural, those tend to be okay. And avoid using anything that does say waterproof or repellent because what we've discussed so far, all these compounds have that repellent and waterproofing characteristics. And again, PFAS are everywhere. So we just wanna be very careful as a sampler when we're sampling for this in the water to make sure that we just don't cause any issues with that sample. Not only is the testing expensive, you're paying twice because if you do contaminate that fill blank, you're paying for that sample to be analyzed as well. And I hear on the other end for treatment, it's not cheap either. So it is very, there's a lot of costs involved with all this. I have to say you had me sold with the no makeup. Right. <laughs> No, I look like I always tell the guys, yeah, I would look like I'm homeless if I was out in a sample. <laughs> you just have to be super aware. And please, yes, we'd love that list. Kathy, what are you usually seeing when you're working with the PFAS? I leave the sampling up to the professionals. I don't even get involved just because there's so many detailed things. If we're going to be working with a client, I will subcontract a lab actually to pull those samples because I know the protocols are pretty extensive, kind of like Marcy was talking about. Let's talk a little bit about the existing regulations because the more I look into it, the more like the phrase hot mess kind of comes to mind. <laughs> and let's just talk about that. What is what is your experience with that? I can talk to that for a little bit. This is Kathy. So Rosa had brought up the UCMR 6 or 5, sorry. And UCMR, before UCMR 5, the regulations were like 200 and 600 for PFOA and PFOS, and that is in parts per trillion or nanograms per liter. So it was pretty high. When the data came back from the UCMR5 in 2016, within a couple of days, they lowered the EPA action level for PFOA and PFOS down to a combined 70 after being at 600. That created... That created quite a stir throughout the United States because it created an emergency situation where water districts were suddenly out of compliance. I actually know a guy who found out he was out of compliance when the New York Times called him and informed him oh. uh, 
yeah, that was, that was not a good day. <laughs> that's, so, yeah, that's not how you want to be notified at all. Well, I, I have to dive in here on a couple things. Um, first of all, that was the UCMR3 release. That, Three, sorry. That, yeah. Correct. Correct. yeah. And, and UCMR5, which is coming up in 2024, uh, will have 29 PFAS. Uh, analyzed. So we'll get more information there. And the other thing is that, that the EPA limit that, as Kathy pointed out, was in the hundreds for PFAS and PFOA is what they call a health advisory level. So it's a non-enforceable federal level. Nobody wants to put anything in water. I, I sometimes joke, people are outraged if there's anything in their water other than H2O. Um, but of course, you know, there's lots of things in our drinking water. Those health advisory limits, people call them HAs now, of 70 parts per trillion were, were only for PFAS and PFOA. And, and you couldn't go to jail if you exceeded the 70, but it was a good way to learn if you were going to have to do something. And that was kind of back in, I don't know, now it's six years ago or something, five years ago. But what's happened since then, Heather, is that about 20 states have have released some form of PFAS regulation, primarily for drinking water or groundwater. Some have released values for soil. State of Michigan has limits in, in surface water, especially surface water being used as, as drinking water. And, and some of those are MCLs, maximum contaminant levels, and those are enforceable. So to Kathy's point, you know, the keeping a, abreast of the regulatory landscape could be a full-time job. Oh, wait a minute, it's my full-time job. But if you're a water operator in a specific state, luckily you only have to follow that state's set of regulations and requirements. That said, some states have changed their MCLs or their proposed MCLs a couple times over the past two or three years. And those numbers are all going down, 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 down to the limit of where Marcy's lab can measure them. You know, some, some levels in California are in the single digit parts per trillion. And that's sort of mind boggling. I think it's a little bit mind boggling. So for now, regulations are actually um, spotty in these 20 states across the country and more are coming, more are coming. But that federal regulatory limit is something that is being tracked extremely closely. And I think in about two years, you're gonna see a federal MCL for PFAS and PFOA, and it will be a little bit on the heels, PFBS, just because of the you know statutory requirements. Those are gonna change things. Those are gonna change, change things a lot. I would say that the trend is not just to reduce the levels of the three that you've mentioned, PFOA, PFOS, and PFBS, but the number of PFAS compounds that has been added is in, uh, kind of mind-boggling as well. Hawaii at this time now has action levels or health advisories on 18 different compounds. And as we talked about, the next UCMR is going to have 29 compounds that people are going to be looking at. It's it's uh, pretty incredible, Heather. Finally, you get one. Yes, you're done one. You've gotten <laughs> one. <laughs> There's 18 more or 20. Right, right. So it's a little bit of a moving target then. And it's, it's very confusing for operators. I've had people ask me, you know, I'm in California where we've got a notification level. We have a reporting limit. You've got the EPA level. The notification level for PFOA is 5.1. The reporting limit is 10. The, you know, the EPA is 70. What does safe mean? You know, what is my driver in terms of reporting? And why is it safe in California? Is not, is it not safe in another state? 
because the level is higher. Um, I think that that causes kind of distress and fear. I attended one of the EPA meetings several years ago when they did their town halls around the country. And a lot of people out there, the people that are receiving the drinking water, their demand is non-detect. But then kind of to Rosa's point, what does non-detect mean? And how do you get down to nothing? It can be a little bit confusing. Well, and I remember in a discussion, they're like, we're trying to get one drop out of 10 Olympic swimming pools. Mm -hmm. kind of and at the same time we can so then it gets into the question just for how much money what are we willing to pay to have clean water that's why i think this uh infrastructure bill that's pending is so fascinating uh, at the federal level because there is a tip of the hat an acknowledgement that municipalities are going to have a lot of trouble bearing the burden of rectifying you know whatever requirement for meeting PFAS levels might be in their jurisdiction. And these water suppliers, they didn't put PFOS in the environment. They didn't put it in the surface water body or the groundwater system that it's in. And yet that's where the buck stops, right? Or the buck starts maybe. That's why that's so important, the, the establishment of potential grant money to jurisdictions that need to mitigate their PFAS. And I mean, Kathy can talk about this all day, I'm sure. I mean, we can get PFAS out of water. We can grab that little molecule and, you know, it's not easy, but you can get it out of there and you can you can get to non-detect uh, using some super double secret probation technology, but you don't actually destroy them. And so, you know, as a society, we actually still have a problem. Uh, now you have some medium that Kathy can tell you about that has PFAS stuck on it, some sort of PFAS. And now we got to get rid of that. It's a little bit like, I sometimes joke, it's like the children's book, The Cat in the Hat Comes Back, where there's this pink stuff that gets on everything in the house and on the snow out front and the mother's dress. And, and uh, well, you have to read the book to see how they fix that. But uh, I don't think that's going to be the solution for us on PFAS. I, I have used that book myself, Rosa, as a, as a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, with PFAS, I, I agree. Dilution is not the solution to, to PFAS. And I think there's two components of treatment. And the first is capture, and then the second is destruction. And while there's a lot of study that really does need to go into destruction technologies, uh, I, I think that there are ways to destroy at least bulk PFAS, but a lot more work needs to be done around that to ensure that we're not hurting ourselves in some other way that we find out about in 50 years. You know, we're just really on the front edge, I think, of treatment. And I just think of my my great grandkids going, gosh, they were so dumb back then. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like we've, we've done when we've looked back at DDT, of course, that was terrible. You know, why didn't people think? But we're really on that front edge of learning you know, the capture, the destruction, how to manage it, how to prevent it, uh, other things to replace it with. I've been doing environmental response work for a long, long time, and and everything was emerging at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of learned how to skin those cats. We wouldn't even dream of in an environmental situation, not necessarily drinking water application. We really wouldn't dream of putting a great big pump and treat system for a groundwater problem today. But, you know, they did a lot in the 90s. So you're absolutely right, Heather. Things are going to change and they may end up being unrecognizable. I'll probably be retired by then. And so it is a little bit exciting. It is a little bit exciting. Unless you're sitting there looking at your glass of water with the stink eye, 
you know, and feeling a little bit feeling a little bit put out. I will say those health advisories are extremely, extremely conservative. They are designed to be protective in such a way. I mean, this is kind of getting uber nerdy, perhaps, but they're designed to be protective in the following ways. One, there is an assumption that 80% of your exposure comes from other than drinking water. You know, the carpets and and pizza boxes and so all so far that so on and so forth that we've discussed right so we can't control that right because mm-hmm. it wasn't controlled but you could control the drinking water level to the 70 parts per trillion well as it turns out the concentration of pfos and pfoa in these other materials is dropping over time because of course of the ban on their production right so what was in your mom's kitchen or your grandmother's kitchen is not the same as what's in your kitchen or that you're picking up when you go out to a restaurant. And, and, you know, sure, it's on pizza boxes, but it's not PFAS and PFOA. It's replacement PFAS. So just keep that in mind. Wouldn't you say, though, Rosa, we don't necessarily have as much tox data on some of the replacement chemicals? We don't. We don't. There is a belief that the shorter chain compounds aren't as toxic, but, you know, the devil's in the details. Yeah, absolutely. But But to the point that uh, I I needed to make about this drinking water protection, there's one other component of the 70 parts per trillion, or if you're in New Jersey in the, you know, teens of parts per trillion or California in the single digits parts per trillion, is predicated on protection of the unborn fetus, right? Exposure in utero followed by exposure during breastfeeding. So you can imagine that's high dose. Remember doses how much you get per kilogram of body weight. And babies are small, right? So the same dose for a baby is is more harmful than a dose for for me, right? And it's also when you're developing. So that 70 parts per trillion protects the most vulnerable population. I don't know if that's any consolation, Heather, but (laughs) I think it should be. I think it should be. I mean, I I appreciate the fact that they're they're trying to do that. I just, when I, when I hear the numbers of getting down to like the teens and, and things like that, I'm all, I just start rubbing my forehead because I'm like, yeah. these systems, how are they going to do that? And if you get it out of water, that's great. But that doesn't mean it's not picked up and comes out to the wastewater. So you know, well, the, the wastewater is a whole other ball of wax. Absolutely. Yeah. Super good question. And we all know what happens. And I don't know if I should go here, but we know all, all know what happens with wastewater treatment. You get a liquid effluent and you get biosolids and you know where they go. Yeah. They go on farmer's fields. So there you go, cat in the hat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to be honest, um, because I work with wastewaters across a lot of different industries, which I'm sure a lot of you do as well. You know, I see it being talked about in the food industry already. I've seen it talked about in, you know, the pulp and paper industry, uh, the automotive industry that the industries are starting to focus on it and making sure that it's not them that are doing it now. So, you know, these, these low, low, low numbers, so hard to get to, but it is triggering industry response. So on that side, it's good, but on the side for the operator and the wastewater operators, like, oh crap, (laughs) it just makes for that long day. (laughs) And a lot of these plants, so many were developed in the seventies and eighties, and they were just meant for nutrient and solid removal. That was it. They weren't made to handle all the personal care products we have now, all the pharmaceuticals. And now we throw this on top of it. 
And it just makes it a harder job for, for everyone, I think. I work with the drinking water side a little more. And it's interesting trying to see these utilities trying to build treatment plants on a site that was only intended really for a pump to pull water out of the ground. You've uh, certainly highlighted a huge challenge, Heather. So an operator has uh, worked with someone like Marcy and you and Rosa, and they find out they have PFAS, they find out that their state has decided to reduce the numbers and so forth like that. So now they need to go and talk to a vendor or an engineer. So what should they come in with? What data or information should they come in with to talk to you guys? Well, I could let you know that the sample results, so the laboratory report is what they're going to get from the environmental laboratory. The results for the drinking water, which is the EPA 537.1 PFAS, will provide those results in nanogram per liter, which is also the same as parts per trillion. Mm -hmm. Our reporting limit is 2.0 nanogram per liter. The current advisory limit, obviously, I say current, that means right now, today, 1130 a.m. <laughs> in Arizona, <laughs> in Arizona is 70.0 nanogram per liter. Obviously, all the states are different. The current advisory limit for the PFOA and PFOS, not all of the PFOS compounds are on the laboratory report. So you do, do def, definitely need to work with your laboratory to find out what set of parameter compounds that you need to have tested. Also just ensuring with your team too that you need to keep up to date on any changes or updates and check with this, your particular state advisory limits. I do want to go back to the actual sample collection, which is the information that I provide for operators that do need to collect the sample. I've already talked about contamination prevention because of the prevalency of these compounds in our everyday lives. For the sample collection, first of all, wash hands. We've learned that very well in the last year, how to wash our hands. <laughs> yeah. With the laboratory sample bottles that are provided, there's also a pair of nitrile gloves. That's what is you want to wear. So wash hands, put the gloves on that are provided. The tap needs to be flushed. Three to five minutes is good. No aerators, no hoses, et cetera. Nothing else connected to that tap. Then you're going to do your field blank. Just pour one field blank into the empty field blank, and it's labeled pretty self-explanatory. Turn the tap down to a slow, steady stream. Carefully fill the preserved sample containers. We use a 1.25 gram Tris mixture preservative, and there's two bottles. So it's pretty easy. It's not like any of the little vials where you have to have no headspace. These ones, you just fill them up to the neck and cap them. Do not overfill because we don't want to lose any of the, that preservative. Use aseptic techniques. Um, this is what I'm very familiar with when we're collecting Think of bacteria samples. You want to be very aseptic. You, again, think about, I don't want to contaminate the sample with anything around me or on me. And that's how you're going to collect these samples. So no sneezing or coughing in the field. Yeah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Might want to start over if you sneeze into the bottle. So again, you have two sample containers. Those are both filled up. Documentation is everything. So documenting the sample location, the date and time that they are sampled on the chain of custody, as well as the containers. Now, these do need to be placed into your cooler. Do you, A, I'm going to ask, do you think that we're supposed to use wet ice or 
should we use a chemical blue pack? I'm going with wet ice. You are correct. Um, so we don't All want. Right. <laughs> if you think about what what do you think is in that chemical blue pack? Yeah, that going into any type of proximity to our samples, it must be maintained. The samples, I should say must be maintained at a four degrees Celsius plus or minus two. The samples have a 14 day hold time. However, you always want to get those to the laboratory well within that amount of time. And our particular laboratory, which is Arizona Department of Health Services certified, we have we offer us a 10 to 15 day turnaround. Obviously check with your local environmental laboratory what their turnaround times are, but that's currently what we have. Now I can say everybody's hyperactive about oh, I don't want to contaminate the sample, but I do have to provide you the information that knowing our, you know, I've talked to the department manager and said, how many samples do you think are getting contaminated by operator contamination? It's very rare. So it is a little overkill for following all these preventions for the contamination but it is something to be aware of. Well, it's great. So we've gotten our samples back and Kathy and Rosa, what do, what do we do next other than maybe cry? So I think <laughs> in terms of the water chemistry, the other things that you're gonna need are not just your PFAS, but the background water chemistry. For yeah. ion exchange, the anions are a really big deal. So you want a balanced water analysis or sometimes it's called a general chemistry. Uh, and for GAC, you're going to want to know if there's other organics in the water. So VOC, TOC type analysis, uh, those are going to be real important. And of course, your flow rate. Rosa, I'd put a meter on it. <laughs> right. You'd be amazed how many people want a recommendation without a flow rate. <laughs> but uh, I was going to turn it to Rosa kind of from uh, from a chem- from that Yeah, Kathy, you hit the nail on the head. There, all these water chemistry parameters are going to affect how water gets treated at the other end. You know, if there's dissolved solids or whatever other competing material for your GAC sites, or as you mentioned, uh, anions in your water supply. But here's another thing that's kind of important. That is, you know, what are you already doing? Are you already performing a reverse osmosis treatment at your plant? If you are, good for you. Of course, your post-RO sample wouldn't have PFAS in it because it can remove PFAS. Uh, but your RO brine is going to have PFAS in it. And you're yeah. going to figure out what to do with that. Or are you already running your system through GAC units? And, and here's another thing that we see a lot of folks um, wondering about. Where am I going to put this equipment? Where am I going to put the new equipment that is required at my treatment plant? A lot of these places are in mature uh, communities that there's not a whole bunch of real estate available nearby. And if you need to, you know, if you have super high flow rates, you might need some very large uh, systems for treatment. And uh, there you go. You know, you might be out of space. I think all of these are competing parameters and uh, you, you have to work with someone to get a design on it. And I know Kathy and her team are able to run some tests. Rapid column testing, for example, for GACs is quite common. So you're going to want to know what's optimized for your particular water chemistry and also what's going to work with your existing infrastructure. It's it's a project. It's a project. And then, of course, it depends on the size of your flow rate. Yeah, because 20 MGD is a lot different than 200. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. You hit the nail on the head. 
I know a lot of these facilities are, are, you know, a hundred thousand or less. So yay, that means something smaller. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of interesting treatments that are develop, developing that, that don't destroy the PFAS, but other ways to get them out, water treatment trains and, you know, there are home filters that are now approved for use. Of course, the home filter has a distinct disadvantage that it relies on the homeowner to maintain. <laughs> So it doesn't help if you never change your filter. Eventually doesn't help. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's more than one way to intercede. There's more more than one place to intercede. And I guess one takeaway is there's no one size fits all. And that's why folks are optimizing treatments for different sizes and, and contaminant characteristics that might arise. So... You know, everybody kind of needs a bespoke system. Yeah, that's really cool. I really appreciate that because a lot of times you're like, if this is brand new to you, you don't know what to even, how to even start. So this kind of gives a sketch of that. Do we have any you know, fun lessons learned that we could share? One of the things that's interesting is when you're looking at designing a system, you don't necessarily have to do test. Testing can be important and can help optimize what you're doing. But a lot of the design work can be done based on modeling. So we can model how long, for example, an ion exchange resin is going to last. Mm -hmm. And we can design a system from a hydraulic standpoint and know this is how big it needs to be in order to to treat this much flow rate. And when you consider different technologies, you asked about lessons learned. I think there's several things to keep in mind. And it kind of goes back to the basics, like we were talking about before. How are you going to capture how are you going to destroy? And sort of like we brought up with the RO, how are you going to handle the waste? So all of the different treatment methods have different ways of capturing different destruction paths forward. And just because something is the least expensive for on a dollar per pound basis, like a media, it may not be the least expensive on an operational standpoint. And so that was one of the eye-opening things for me as I went through this and kind of speaking to Rose's point that you really want to look at every system and figure out what's going to be the cheapest long-term operationally and get the most PFAS possible out of the water to keep up with the demands of your customers and the demands of regulations tomorrow. That's a great summary. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good way to sum it up. Any other lessons or tips or tricks or something? No, sampling's pretty straightforward. All right. Something I like to share when I talk to customers about it is to not panic, to not just automatically go out there and buy the, you know, the latest, the greatest, the sexiest stuff and feel that you have to put in, you know, bazillions of dollars in it. Take time to look at it first and not just kind of do a knee jerk reaction to it. Like you said, you, these are these are unique systems. Each one has a different need, different spacing, different solutions. So there's a lot to consider. You can't just run in and just buy the first thing you see. Kind of. Yeah, de- depending where you are, it, it might not be, you know, I'm not going to say because it's not enforceable, it doesn't matter. But if it's not enforceable, you actually, you know, an enforceable limit, it, it gives you time to ponder your options, right? So you don't have to freak out and immediately put in some temporary system at at expense while you're managing it. And of course, it depends on the levels at which you're detecting PFAS. You know, if you had thousands of parts per billion, you know, you might not want to take the Rosa Gwynn approach there. But uh, 
But you, I think you get my point. I mean, these are health effects based on a duration of exposure. It's not like, you know, just one day of drinking water that exceeds the 70 parts per trillion and your goose is cooked, right? It, there's an exposure duration. So during that time, you should weigh your alternatives and you should ask yourself, what is the long-term commitment I'm making to disposal for some of the materials that are used for removal? And am I going down a path that is going to solve the problem for PFAS and PFOA, but maybe not for some of the other compounds that I believe I might have as concern. And how do you believe they might be a concern? Well, certainly you can test your sample, look at look at it, you know, for the 30 or so compounds that are easy to measure, fewer if you're using the 537.1. And and you know, figure out how complex is my system? Because those other PFAS, other than the regulated ones, they actually compete for this uh, absorption media, right? So, you know, that could be a that could be a significant factor. You absolutely have to consider the full system and where you want to be once you've spent your money. Awesome. But you know, if you have public pressure or you yourself have a concern that it really cannot go for one day more, that's an issue. Now, let's also remember that a lot of water suppliers have the alternative for balancing their supply. They can uh, use more from a, uh, one well and maybe turn off or lower the flow rate from an offending well. I know, Heather, that it's not as convenient to do that in parts of Arizona, and we've talked to folks who are not able to do that, right? But yeah. in the short term, you're able to do that and protect your, you, you know, your your customer, right? While you're making your decision. If you have that flexibility, you should by all means try to take advantage of it. All right. Well, ladies, I truly appreciate this conversation we've had. I have mixed feelings on it. I have excitement and also like, oh, crap. But I appreciate the conversation because it points us in a direction where you know we're solving the problem, not just dwelling on it. So I really appreciate that. Well, Heather, I have to make a quick comment. So there are two things that I often say to people. One is PFAS actually aren't everywhere. There are a lot of places, but we've also collected, you know, hundreds of thousands of samples and some of those don't have detections of PFAS, right? So they're, they're not truly everywhere, but they are where they shouldn't be. And that's, that's a problem. The other thing that I like to remind people is, wow, you know, you think this sounds so complicated. There's so many and they have this crazy carbon fluorine bond. But the good news is, that the laws of chemistry and physics still apply. And just because we haven't learned everything there is to learn about the chemistry or physical behavior of the PFAS that we're concerned about doesn't mean we won't. We did it for other compounds. We had to do it. I sort of feel like we're in the PhD realm of our environmental response. We just got thrown our final practical exam where we're being asked to solve one of the most prickly problems that there is. And you know what? We're ready. We, we've been preparing for this for 30 years, ever since the Safe Drinking Water Act emerged. So let's get across it. Let's just use our tools and do our best. Let's get across it. We're ready. Awesome. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate that. I really do. So I want to transfer now to Wanda's water tidbit. This is the part where my mom would always send me articles and things on stuff she found interesting. So this is my salute to her, but going from PFAS now to mining for sewer heat. And I don't know if any of you guys had really heard this uh, before or had any exposure to this. That's in, a new one other, for me. I've seen it in, in other countries. 
actually. There's oh. um, <laughs> there's a, a an NGO somewhere where they collect uh, waste and then it's brought back to a central facility and they use it for, uh, I, I don't know, they disinfect it and somehow make it into sort of a coal for, for burning in people's homes. Um, but also digesters is, is another place that sometimes they reuse bioresource type. type I thought this was more like a heat pump action where you're talking, you know, I think about, so I grew up in Kentucky and if you grow up in Kentucky, you go to Mammoth Cave, which is the largest continuous underground cavern in the world. And the temperature in, in the cave is always 54 degrees. Always. It is a regulated temperature system. I thought that's where you were going with this, Heather, that those sewer systems have a temperature regulator that you they can you can use basically as a giant heat heat pump, right? Because we know exactly what the temperature is gonna be when everybody flushes their commode, right? Typically uh, in Arizona, it's probably a little hotter during the summer and then yeah, for sure. a little colder in the winter. But yeah, you know, like all these things, we're start, starting to now see wastewater as a resource, you know, either through solids oh, and sure. reusing it. Uh, and this one is just, you know, using the heat exchanger to basically pull either that heat, depending on the time of the year, or, you know, using it to cool another water exchange. So it's just, it, to me, I thought it was really kind of, kind of smart to use a heat exchanger for that. I don't know very many people who want to do it for their house just yet, but uh, the, the National Western Center has done it. Several of the communities and countries that are dealing with like uh, the Olympic villages, British Columbia, they're doing 70% of their energy and heat for their Olympic village from the sewer. Had someone say, you know, no good thing comes from wastewater. I'm like, are you kidding? We're sitting on a, you know, a gold mine here. <laughs> and, you know, with that, we get the we get wastewater saves money. You know, energy costs can be uh, driven down. Some are getting 80% reduction, but there are also some challenges. You know, if you're dealing with the wastewater, you're always going to be dealing with biofilms. Uh, like Kathy mentioned, you're always dealing with the solid. And, you know, once again, the quantity of flow impacts everything. So, you know, if you're in a community that has a university and during the summertime, everyone's gone, there's going to be a period of time you're just not going to be able to get a lot of system usage, I guess. Heather, I'm glad you mentioned this, you know, wastewater as a resource. And if we don't start really significantly focusing on water reuse for groundwater replenishment, this whole country is going to be in a pickle. Um, and I know that's a little bit off topic from your heat exchange of sewers. But uh, I think the whole idea of not leaving any of this on the table is a good one. My grandmother didn't waste anything, you know, things went into her compost and, and so forth. And we don't live that way. And it's going to lead to a world of hurt if we don't start doing it and if we don't start doing it with water, which is a limited commodity. Yeah. There's only so much water on the planet. Well, and I, I know here in Arizona, there's a lot of times where we, the wastewater plant is the river. Yeah, uh, sure. There's no other water around in the area. And we do do some recharge and reuse as well, but it's not as predominant as we're going to have to in the future. So yeah, yeah you know, leaving nothing on the table, I think is important. Well, ladies, I want to sincerely thank you for talking with me today and making us think more about all of this, you know, PFAS and applications and so forth. Uh, if you would like to get a hold of any of these lovely guests, we will be putting their information in the show notes. And once again, we want to thank your listeners for listening and joining us for this episode and a special shout out to our listeners in Cyprus and Haiti. Thanks for joining us. Heather, thanks so much. It's a real honor to be here with uh, Marcy and Rosa. Now, thank you very much too. This is interesting. So I'm grateful for your time. Thanks a bunch.
Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.